episode three with highly experienced ASX listed chairman and business leader, John Dougal. Hello and welcome to The Pathway. My name is Tim Deeks and in this podcast, we dive deep into the lives of interesting characters from a wide range of backgrounds. No matter if the guest is a leader in business, sport, media or politics, everyone has a pathway through life. And it is my ambition that through each guest's unique story, you'll be able to take something away to put into action on your own path. So let's start walking. And I'm very pleased to say I've got John Dougal here today. Welcome, John. Welcome to The Pathway. Thank you, Tim. So I just wanted to ask you first off, what was your very first job? My mum and my mother and father owned a small uh, chain of department stores in uh, Melbourne, men's wear, women's wear, boys wear, girls wear, and um, what was called Manchester towels, sheets, and so on. So at the age of 14, I started working in the uh, boys' department as a salesman on uh, school holidays and Saturdays and uh, continued to work there part-time through school and university breaks right until I got a full-time job with then IBM Corporation after graduating from Melbourne University. What were you like as a salesperson early on? Do you, uh, do you have siblings? Well, I've got uh, two sisters, one three years younger than me and one six years younger than me. I was the oldest boy. I was born during the uh, Second World War. I didn't see my father till I was three years of age because he was away for six years fighting for Australia. Incredible. So, um, interesting family. What sort of a salesman was I? I was very shy initially. I was thrown in the deep end by my dad and his brother, who were the co-owners with my mother of the uh, chain. Yeah, it was an interesting experience. We were we weren't paid on commission, but at the close of every day, we were. I had to present our sales book to see what we'd sold. My dad was pretty tough, so if I said, "Dad, I just sold that guy a shirt," he'd say, "John." That's not selling, that's taking orders. Did you sell him a pair of socks and a mat- matching tie? And I said, no, I didn't. He said, well, rather than taking orders, come back and tell me. Always looking for the upside. Now, you did start your career at IBM in, in January 1965 as a systems engineer. You were promoted through tenure uh, tenure in Australia. Then you moved to New York to work directly with the senior vice president of IBM. What did you learn from that experience working so closely with such a person in a senior role that served you as a leader later on in your career? Yes, it's an interesting question. Um, My wife, Suzanne, and I, we moved to New York. We didn't know a single person. We had two young children. Our sons were seven and four. I was actually working for the president of IBM Corporation in the head office. We had 300,000 employees around the world. I had five secretaries working for me. There was no word processing in those days. Um, I learned uh, basically to be important of attention to detail. I learned to uh, listen. I also learned that as the um, assistant to the president, people would come to me, senior people in the company would come to me for advice and it was very, had to be very careful that I didn't assume I had authority. I was there as an advisor. So I learned a lot about organizational structure, clear delegation and uh, quality of advice, Tim. What was it about technology that interested you early on? Because you, your career being in the technology field in some way. Yes. Um, when I was just finishing year 12, my father went on a an eight-week trip to the United States with the Retail Traders Association, which he was a member, and came back and said, um, John, there's this extraordinary company called International Business Machines. When you graduate from university, you should see if you can join them. But um, IBM in the late 60, mid-late 60 was the, the hot company in the world. And I guess if I was advising young people coming out of university or year 12 now, I'd say 
as you graduate, look to join one of those really top internationally competitive companies as a starting point and a way to continue to learn how business is done on a global basis and very professionally. And that's what I got from IBM. And New York is such a, you know, such a grand city. How was it moving from, from Melbourne to, to New York? What was that experience like? Uh, well, as I said, we didn't know a single person, so it was a bit of a surprise. And moving there in the mid-late 70s, my wife, Suzanne, and I, we looked like we'd come from Carnaby Street compared to the Americans. You know, I had, even though I was working for IBM as the uh, Victorian branch manager before I moved to New York, you know, I had long sideboards, um, flared suits, <laughs> and uh, the New Yorkers were very, very conservative, so that was a real shock. You know, the other thing that was quite strange is that the speed at which things happened in New York compared to living and working in Australia at the time. And when I left New York to come back to Australia as the Australian sales manager for IBM, I really missed the the speed and the way things happened compared to the way we were then living, although it's picked up quite a bit now. Did you implement a lot from what you learned in New York to Australia and try and quicken that process? Um, I did. You know, I, I was came back very committed to making sure people had clear goals and objectives that they agreed to, not those that were just sort of pushed down on them. So I, I very much operated with a sort of a bottoms-up commitment to what we were, as a team were going to achieve. I'd come back as the Australian sales manager for IBM. I was 33 years of age. A lot of the people working for me were up to 10 years older than me. Many of them had a strong background before joining IBM in the military. So, you know, a bit aghast that this young guy had come back to tell them what to do. You know, I, I didn't ask anything of anyone that I wasn't prepared to do myself. I've always set very high goals and I expect people to do the same. Could be a strength or a weakness, I'm not sure. Oh, well, you certainly would have gained their, their respect through that path. I mean, it's interesting to think about with uh, managing older people and gaining that respect. There's, there'll be a lot of people listening that, you know, are leaders and managers. How would you, what would be your advice, apart from obviously working, you know, setting high goals, when you're managing people that are far older than you, what is, you know, is there some tips on maybe how to tread carefully or, or what's your advice? Well, people, what, what I've found that I've, you know, I've had, generally I've had people working for me both my age, younger, but an awful lot of people uh, quite a bit older than me uh, in, in the other companies I've run in Australia and overseas. The older, the, the older people have got it, they've learned a lot. You can learn from them. Sometimes they're a bit set in their ways. So you have to sort of say, well, look, yes, we could do it that way, but why don't we think about doing it this way? Ultimately, you know, people, if I can use the, the statement, they've either get on, get on the bus with you or get off the bus. And any time I've run a public company and I've gone on to run another company, which I'll say in a moment, there's no such thing as a lifetime career with a single company these days, Tim. You've got to be prepared to be flexible and prepared to move. Any time I'd left to go from one company to another, I, I was always delighted with how, how disappointed people were that had worked with me, young or old, that I was leaving. It's a sign that you were clearly well-respected. And one thing that's really struck me when I was researching your background in business is that since you departed the University of Melbourne, and shout out to anyone, anyone from the University of Melbourne listening, it doesn't appear that you've taken any breaks. In fact, you've really only added to the number of senior roles, and no doubt you'll expand on that um, at some point. How, how have you been able to sustain your energy and passion for business for the good part of 55 years? Well, uh, yeah, look, I, 
as I said, I started working in a fairly tough environment for my father and mother when I was 14. I learned from them uh, basically you know, high standards, um, flexibility, and John never, never give up. I, early on, after I think in hindsight, probably staying with IBM for 15 years was a mistake. It became clear in when I came back to Australia as the Australian sales manager that unless I was a U.S. citizen in those days, I wasn't I wasn't going to get much higher in a U.S. multinational. Probably different today, but not then. So um, I decided to um, basically leave and join one of the competitors. I took over as managing director Australia New Zealand for one of their tough competitors. Um, I then two years later was offered the chance to also run all of Asia and South Pacific. That meant uh, moving again. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, Suzanne, my wife, was was very tolerant of the moves, was tough on our boys because they were teenagers. Uh, and then quickly after the uh, responsibility of running Asia, I was asked to go to the UK and run Middle East, Africa and Europe. Uh, and then once again, we had to move after um, a year moving to run Asia. So I've, I've, been, I've been very lucky to have great support from my wife about moving. She's been probably more entrepreneurial than I am, my wife Suzanne. So yeah, she's quite successful in her own right. I was really fascinated reading about her background. <laughs> well, she has. She's been done a lot of run her own businesses. She's owned two very successful shops in Sydney over time. She's been doing massive property developments and interior design work, sometimes being overseas for five to six months at a time in places like Florence and London and Aspen and mm. South of France. So she's been supportive of the moves. So yeah, I've always looked to see, you know, what can I do? What, how can I take advantage of my background and knowledge to take other companies a bit further than maybe they are heading? I started running public companies in Australia from 1985, and I've run five public companies here. And a company took Aussie Software to San Francisco and floated on the Nasdaq. So and now I'm back. I'm chairing a couple of ASX uh, public companies that are in technology and really trying, um, Tim, to um, give back and also to help bright young Australian entrepreneurs learn a few lessons that I've learned the hard way in running public companies. I'm enthusiastic about what I'm doing, even though I'm, uh, as you may have guessed, sort of uh, approaching 70 from the wrong direction. Not at all. I think you, it sounds like even just hearing you talk about it, I'm inspired by your, your passion and motivation to continue. I mean, for a lot of businesses and no doubt you've experienced a lot of failure um, along the way, it's just naturally part of the course. Well, certainly, I think I've made probably more than half my decisions were right. So that's what I'd say. And you'd be um, happy with that. You'd be very happy with that average. Yeah, but it's, you know, it's important also just in that very point is that um, don't get caught up in the bureaucracy. You know, running a public company, if, if, it's, if it's a bureaucratic operation, which I hate, is just as frustrating at the top of a bureaucracy as it is at the bottom. So, you know, make decisions. Sometimes they're right. Most times they're right. But make decisions and get on. People like clear direction. Is that an innate leadership skill? Is that is that born or is that is that learnt over time and experience? Yeah, I think that, you know, I probably started off in my early days as a manager being fairly democratic. I think now I'm probably more what I'd call a benevolent autocrat. So I, I, I'm not completely autocratic, but you know, I'll listen to the advice from people working with me and then just say, okay, guys, I've heard it all. This is what we're going to do. Let's get behind it and make sure I bring them with me. Uh, 
early days in management, I probably took too long, took advice from too many people, listened to too many people and sort of agonised over the decision. I don't do that anymore. As a chairman of, of two ASX listed companies, uh, looking at the shifting landscape, we talked a little bit before um, before we went on air, how, how businesses are operating at the moment in the COVID world. What are some of the general changes you think will occur once um, once we get over the, the hump? Well, I think um, I think it's going to take certainly for Australia at least two years, maybe more, to get back to where we were a year ago. I think that people are learning that the technology, things like Zoom and uh, other technology, is going to make it difficult for the traditional, you know, fly from Melbourne to Sydney for a business meeting. Those things, I think, are going to cut back dramatically. Companies won't be able to afford it on the one hand, and on the other hand, uh, the last couple of months. Uh, Tim, I think people have learned that you can actually still, with the proper technology, you can run business meetings, you can make decisions, you can motivate people without having to physically be there. So I wouldn't want to be running an airline business coming out of this. Uh, I wouldn't want to be in the travel business. I think that there's a lot of the communication now coming out of the US from people like Stanford and Harvard and, and co saying that, you know, have a business focus on on social matters. Uh, look at ways of helping people communicate other than face-to-face. Those businesses are going to do well. The travel areas is going to, I think, struggle. I think retail is going to struggle. Face, you know, Bricks and mortar will struggle. Um, look at the battle going on at the moment with uh, Solly Lou and the, mm. the big um, the big retail, uh, the big um, people shopping renting centers, out yeah. the shopping complexes. Mm. You know, that's that's still playing itself out. So, look, I think we're in for a tough couple of years. I don't think, unfortunately, everyone that had a job going into it is going to have one coming out. The ever-changing landscape. What's been the best investment, um, business or personal, do you think you've you've made over your time? Look, I think, as uh, I said a moment ago, probably in hindsight, even though it was a wonderful experience and I learned a lot, I stayed too long with IBM. I should have left uh, when I came back from New York. I should have then joined a public company and started getting share options in the company and building not just a salary but equity. So um, I would encourage young people to, once they graduate, and I'd say if I was in Sydney, I'd be going to University of Technology and doing a business degree. It's one of those great degrees that matches theory and practice. In Melbourne, I'd do a commerce degree. If you don't know what you want to do at year 12, they're the two things to consider. But then joined a, a first-class uh, international company that I said is internationally competitive to keep learning. And within five years, I would jump ship and join a public company. I've, I've basically done fairly well with share options and investing back in the company. And being in a public company, you learn, a, you learn an awful lot about business that you don't learn in sales or marketing for a multinational. That's how, that's yeah. how I, I think I gained a lot out of my time running public companies, Tim. Great answer. And I really appreciate your honesty. What's, what's something that excites you about the future? Well, um, you know, I, I hope on the one hand I'm concerned that my uh, grandchildren and their, their children are not going to be saddled with a massive debt out of this uh, terrible crisis we're in at the moment. I fear for the worst there. On the positive side, look, I, I think we've got a, a bright, uh, well-educated workforce uh, education at, at secondary level I think can be improved dramatically but we've got skilled people enthusiastic people there's now 150 
technology companies listed on the Australian stock market. If you go back 10 years, there was a handful. So bright young entrepreneurs with a, with a great concept of getting financial backing in Australia from venture capitalists, that didn't happen when I first got involved with public companies. So I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, for bright entrepreneurial people to get funded and, and fulfill their dream. I hope we don't get saddled with massive debts and, and, and forced taxation that you know pulls back on that. What's businesses' role in this? What, what How can they assist the government? I know you've worked a lot with the government and the CSIRO. Well, um, it's a big question. I think Scott Morrison would probably like the answer as well. It's a <laughs> it's a massive it's a massive question. Uh, look, look, I, I'm still a, a strong believer in capitalism. That you know, unfortunately, at the moment, I think something like sixty percent of um, people are being employed by the government, either in the bureaucracy or on JobKeeper or you know job seeker programs. That's got to stop as quickly as possible. I, I guess I'm a little bit radical in that. Going into the, um, the lockdown, I felt at the time that we were going a bit too aggressively and that maybe you know, people my age, um, we need to look after them, but the younger population should, to the extent possible, stay in work, making earning money and not being on the government uh, payroll. What can business do coming out of it? I think basically take the risk, bring back as many of their employees as they possibly can, look at new ways of generating profits. And as I said a moment ago, there, there's something happening in the community all about social engagement, not necessarily face-to-face. Look at ways in which um, applications on your phone or use of technology can uh, find a different way of engaging with your customers, making sure your staff are motivated. But it's all about business getting back. We we can't operate with people on the government government take for much longer, I don't think, Tim. I'm really interested yeah. to hear your points on, on degrees because a lot of people, when they don't know what they want to do, they pick almost the easiest degree or they pick a degree that unfortunately at the end of it won't have a positive outcome, which is a job. Look, um, I, I think that um, I'll, I'll be apolitical in my comment here, but over the last few years, federal governments of different, you know, Labor, Liberal, whatever, I think that we encouraged people to go and gain a tertiary university education and a lot of the courses that were established to accommodate people that really didn't have you know, maybe the ideal ATAR scores out of year 12 have now coming out of those university degrees. They're, um, they're soft-skilled degrees and um, unfortunately a lot of those people either are now or will finish up in you know, call centre operations or, or low-level low-level tasks, even though they've got a tertiary education. If you're not sure what you want to do out of year 12 and get your best marks you can, as I mentioned a moment ago, I'm strongly uh, in favour of the University of Technology, Sydney, and also Melbourne University because those business commerce degrees position you coming out of the um, education system with flexibility as to what you can do, and they also have a wonderful way of mixing uh, theory and, and academic uh, education with practice. Even going back to the, you know, the recession in 1991-92, anyone coming out of those degrees uh, were, were able to get work in the economy. People that had soft skill degrees struggled for a long time. 
So if you're not sure what you want to do, I'd be inclined to chase a business or commerce degree. I would stay away from arts and I'd stay away from law. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of people coming out with law degrees these days, Tim, 90% of them can't get a job with a law firm. Yeah, it's that business skill that's important. If your grandchildren came to you, and I'm not sure what, what age they are, they not, might not be ready for, for business just yet, but if they came to you and they said, I'm unsure of what industry to get involved in, what would be, what would be your advice? What do you see for the future? Obviously, technology is going to be. It depends. Yeah. Yes. Look, um, I, I, I've got we've got five grandchildren, Suzanne and I. We've our younger son Martin. He's got seven-year-old twin girls and a nine-year-old girl, so they're a bit early on. Our elder son Simon's got a twenty-one-year-old daughter and an eighteen-year-old son. They're both Isabella, the the girl, is doing second year at Sydney University, uh, and Jack's just um, about to start a degree with Macquarie. Sometimes you can give advice to people that aren't related and they take it much better than people that are related, Tim. Yeah. Uh, I, I tried to convince my granddaughter to um, to, to do a business degree. Uh, she's chosen to do uh, a very interesting degree at, at Sydney University and she's probably a little bit more artistic than I am. Uh, Jack, at 18, at Macquarie, he's actually doing a business degree at Macquarie. And I think you'll do very well there. So what industry to focus on? There's no doubt that Australia's got wonderful skills in technology. As I mentioned a month ago, with 150 companies listed on the stock market, I'll be looking for people as, as things pick up. And it's a chance to work with a public company, learn all the skills about running a public company and get shares along the way, which can build your net worth. Um, I think biotechnology is another interesting area for us. And, of course, one of our major exports is um, is education. You know, we desperately need some people that have got um, good skills in science and mathematics to help us lift our education standards. And I think that going forward, first-class educators will be properly rewarded. I don't think they are at the moment, but I think in the future they'll be properly rewarded. If a listener is, is, is uh, hearing this and they would like to get into business and they would like they have an idea and they would like to start their business, do you recommend that they start at a technology firm first and make their mistakes there or just go for it? Look, I think it depends on the personality. If you're um, a bit of a technology geek, I'd be inclined to join you know, one of the hot young firms, learn how things are done and then see if you can get, uh, maybe initially it's going to be family funded uh, venture capital. You know, start Start fairly small once you've had a, a background with a you know a really first class technology company. Invest small and um, you know, just see how you go. Um, if you think you you know you're outgoing and got a great idea, the venture capitalists and there's, there's quite a lot of firms in Australia now, various sizes, angel investors that will help someone get you know off the ground. Uh, they're, they're going to want to share in your business, so you're going to have to consider giving up a share of your of your company down the track to get funding in the first place. So depend, I think my view is depending on, on the idea you have and on your personality, I'd go for it right off with, with either family funding and then venture capital funding. If you've got an idea and you're a little bit of an introvert, I'd join a company first and get you know, understand how business operates and get the skills and then branch out. That's great advice and I think a lot of people listening would, would appreciate that, uh, that council. I've just got three rapid fire questions because I know it's a busy day for you. What's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Okay, what's the first thing I do? Um, okay, apart from that, a quick wash. I make my bed. 
I make the bed every day. Every I think day. that's an important discipline, every day. I then make myself a double espresso coffee. I've got a very nice Italian coffee machine in our apartment. Um, I then do about 25 minutes of calisthenics. Um, and because I'm running listed companies, one has got a, um, one of the companies, they're both Australian companies, but one's got large offices in New York and the other one's got large offices in Singapore. My days are fairly long. So once I've done those things, I'm usually up about, I get up about six o'clock every morning. Around sort of quarter to seven, I'll get on the emails and look at what's happening overnight from New York. And then before I go to bed at night, which is, doesn't help sleep, I'll have a look at what's happening in Singapore and Jakarta with the other company because they're two hours to three hours behind us. What is the book you recommend to friends the most? Okay, that's a good question. The book that I like at the moment is called Never Split the Difference. And it's written by a retired FBI terrorist negotiator whose name is Chris Vamos, I think. And it's a book all about, from his life experience, just dealing with people, dealing with kidnappers, dealing with terrorists, dealing with business people. It's a wonderful book that gives you the, the skills in terms of how to negotiate and get an outcome that's the best for everybody. It's called Never Split the Difference. It's a, it's very... a radical topic because most people do split the difference. Have you implemented any of the principles from the negotiation uh, strategies he's given? Almost all of it. If you go back and, well, yeah, I think you've really answered it um, incredibly well a couple of times, but if you go back to your 25-year-old self, if you could speak to a 25-year-old John and give him one piece of advice, what would it be? Okay, well, let me just think about that. At age 25, Tim, I was married with two boys. I'm still married to Suzanne after you know, just over 50 years. Um, we've had some ups and downs. I think if I was 25, I would probably make sure I selected a what would be a lifetime partner. And I would be, let me think about that, I'd be in year four at IBM. Um, I would stay there for another sort of three to five years and then look to move across and join an Australian public company in a sort of maybe a second or third level role, but with a an opportunity to take what I'll call a C-level job. In other words, chief this, chief that, whatever it might be, chief technology, chief financial officer, and start building equity that I could um, build my family's worth. I could talk to you all day, and so I'm going to give you one quick bonus question. Do you have a motto or quote that you live by? Never, never, never give up. Great way to end it. I really appreciate your time, John. Thank you so much, and I hope you have a fantastic okay, rest of the day. Thank you very much. I enjoyed our discussion. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, tell your friends, and join me next time on The Pathway.